Okay, here we go, only a dream part two. William Atherton is uh, John D. It's a lot of fun. The machine always looked a little weird. It's probably based on an original design from the comics in some way that I'm just not familiar with, but it really does look like one weird machine. When uh, Dr. Destiny's design was first revealed in a piece of promotional art on the internet, people criticized it for looking a bit too much like Skeletor from uh, from He-Man, because Bruce Timm, in his early days, actually worked on the He-Man series. People weren't quite sure if it was a an homage or a coincidence or what. It, it's similar to one of to a lot of his looks in the comics, but enough towards the Skeletor side of things that it might have been an intentional nod. Probably never know. So this episode, uh, like a lot of the episodes from Season 2, has taken some flack for being padded, uh, in that the first part of the episode is really only there to give us, you know, a protracted fight scene as expertly animated as it is, and set up part two, where part two opens with the main plot of the episode just really having started with Dr. Destiny having infiltrated the League members' dreams. It almost seems like you could start the episode right from there and just hit the ground running and then explain through flashbacks or exposition how they got that way and not even have part one at all. But uh, I suppose it served uh, to, to introduce the villain in a very interesting way and provide him with some characterization, so I suppose it was necessary in that sense. It's a fun little thing here. The fact that uh, Flash is a hero to kids, or I suppose given that this is his dream, sees himself as a hero to kids, is uh, expanded on later in a comfort to, in uh, Comfort and Joy, where he is the personal hero of, a, of an orphanage in Central City and gets them a a toy for Christmas every year. The series really played Flash as sort of the working man's hero, the average person's hero, the the kid's hero. A lot more in touch with his humanity than even a lot of the characters on the series that didn't have powers, like Batman or, or later on Green Arrow. This joke here is great, and it's really delivered so well, too, by Michael Rosenbaum. Then there's no food. I'm not quite sure what this dream is supposed to be telling us when I think about it. Flash is afraid of kids. He's afraid of cannibals. He's He needs to go to the dentist. I'm not quite sure what it's telling us, but it's it's creepy as hell, that's for sure. He doesn't actually have a building like that, although I suppose it's similar to the Flash Museum, which we see in Season 5. Rotten little curs. Now, this actually makes a lot of sense. It's, uh, it's an interesting way to go with the character. I know for a while in the comics, immediately after he became the Flash... Wally West was a bit of a show-off, a bit of a jerk, and 
would hit on any woman with two legs and, and acted a lot like he does in this series. And I'm not sure if it was ever actually explained in the same way it is here, but this really does serve to provide some interesting characterization for the Flash, where you kind of get the impression that maybe the reason why he's always kidding around with everybody and never stops talking and 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 things of that nature is because he's afraid of losing his connection to humanity. He's afraid of of not being able to communicate with people, of, of being by himself and, and trapped and no longer a part of the world. And so he's always trying to engage the world through, you know, wise-assery and little stunts and even charitable works and so on like that. So it's it's really a pretty deft characterization of The Flash that I'm not sure I've seen anywhere else. And how gorgeous is that black and white art, too? They don't try out the black and white thing very often, but when they do, it always works really well. Who's up next? Superman? That's right, Superman. Same, his same apartment from Superman, the animated series, looks exactly the same. Now here, this is fir- first of all the first appearance of his Clark Kent identity on the series. And uh, played with a lot of self-deprecation and charm by George Newbern. But Lois here looks really freaky when you think about it. First of all, her hair is part in the wrong direction. Her eyes are the wrong color. They're supposed to be sort of a lavenderish color. It's still Dana Delaney, of course, but she she looks a little weird, and that was corrected the next time she appeared in uh, in a better world. But the fact remains, I'm not quite sure what happened there. If someone at DR Movie lost the model sheet or what? And here we see uh, John Stewart's home in I believe it's supposed to be Detroit, although I guess it could be New York. Um that we saw and that we glimpsed in uh, in Blackest Night. And here you even see uh, the two characters he met there. Al, his old teacher, Al McGee, and his Al McGee's grandson, Chris McGee. This is also an interesting bit of characterization for Green Lantern. Now, in the press materials for the series, it stated how Green Lantern had been away from Earth in space as a Green Lantern, uh, patrolling some other sector for, I believe, 10 or 15 years. And so when he came back to Earth, around the time period of Secret Origins, the idea was that he would have, that he would felt like the world had passed him by, and he would he would have a hard time fitting in. And they played that up a little bit in, in Blackest Night, where he was seeing his old neighborhood for the first time. And Al McGee commented that he'd been gone a long time. But this is really the first time, and I'm not sure it's ever really touched on again, actually, that they really play up his sense of alienation. That in some ways, he, it's... This world is every bit as alien to him now as any of the other worlds in in his sector that he might patrol. That he feels like he's not human anymore, and and beyond that, that the lantern power that the Guardians have given him has become more important than his humanity, that it's taken over his identity, that he's nothing more than an extension of the Guardians' will and, and the ring's power. And in this episode, he really learns that he can channel the ring's power and use it, but still maintain 
who he is, and as Jean says, he's not an extension of the power. The Guardians chose him because of who he is, not because of what the ring can do with him there. Now, what's interesting here is that we know later on that Jean can't read Hawkgirl's thoughts. They even established that later on in this episode, that he can't get into her mind. Dr. Destiny has gotten into her mind now. Is he a more powerful telepath than Jean? Or is his, does his telepathy just work differently? Or are Thanagarians only immune to Jean's telepathy? Are they, were they, are they all conditioned somehow to resist Martians? Because she knew, obviously, they knew when they were sending her here that she might run into a Martian, I suppose. I, I don't. I'm not quite sure why one can, can one can get into her head and the other can't. Quite frankly. But this is interesting too. This was never played up again either. That uh, she's claustrophobic, and it makes sense for a bird-like character. She's used to the open air, being free, being unencumbered. But more than that, psychologically speaking. She's just afraid of being closed off. She's afraid of being dead. And, and well, afraid of being dead is probably not that unusual, but perhaps it even has a little bit of a death wish. I mean, she's probably she's probably carrying a tremendous amount of guilt that she, on the, about the fact that she's spying on her teammates and reporting back to the Thanagarians. And having dreams of falling and death might be a manifestation of that, I suppose. And uh, Dr. Destiny's wife is dead. They didn't kill off characters too often. I suppose they, they ramped it up a bit in Season 2, started killing off more characters, but still, a unusual. A rare use of Jean's theme here in a moment, right there. It appears several times in this episode. They didn't use it that often, only in three or four episodes. This is a great bit here, too. I don't know how they could get David Kaufman in for one line. Maybe they had him play somebody else in the episode that I just didn't notice. But seems like a bit of a wasted expense, but hey, it's cool to see Jimmy again. He calls, Superman calls him his pal because, of course, Jimmy Olsen has traditionally been called Jimmy Olsen Superman's pal or Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. That's what his own monthly comic book series was called, and that's what the episode featuring him in Superman the Animated Series was called, Superman's pal. So... It's a bit of a throwback to that. This is quite similar to a story called A Midsummer's Nightmare that Mark Wade wrote uh, in the 90s, where each of the leaguers were shown like their worst nightmare by Dr. Destiny, and Superman's nightmare was that his power would grow to the extent that his every every word he spoke would be like an atomic bomb, and he would completely level Metropolis. He couldn't look at anything without incinerating it. He destroyed everything. But John said to him, This is not you. This could never be you. All you've ever known how to do is help. Which I thought was... Right. Here's Jean's theme again right here. This barn is straight out of Superman the Animated Series 2. The fact that the Kents keep the rocket that he came to Earth in in that little hideaway there 
is straight out of Last Son of Krypton Part 2, the episode of Superman where he was a teenager and his origins were revealed to him. And as a matter of fact, I've gone by it now, but the bit where Jean is trailing Clark over skies of Smallville, and I, I keep meaning to go back to Last Son of Krypton and double-check this, but I'm almost certain that that cue, music cue there is straight out of Last Son of Krypton when young Clark is flying over Metro- over Smallville for the first time. So I'm not sure if that's like a flight over Smallville theme or what it is, but I keep meaning to check that out, but I'm almost certain it's the case. This always reminds me of a scene from uh, Dreams in Darkness in Batman the Animated Series where he's driving along and he sees an illusion on the on the road because he's been doused by Scarecrow's gas. He sees an illusion of Robin and swerves and goes off the road. This whole thing, in a way, almost feels like a, an episode of Batman the Animated Series with the other characters in it. And the creative team's gotten some criticism for the show becoming Batman and his amazing friends, but hey, when you when you write Batman that well and you've got Kevin Conroy voicing him, why wouldn't you want to play him up? This episode is actually great for a lot of the musical themes. You get Green Lantern's theme in a minute here when he busts out of the battery. Flash's theme is in a couple of places. Jean's theme I've already pointed out. I'm not sure Superman's theme is in here, but I wouldn't be surprised. And I love this bit here. It's like the it's like the Only a Dream theme or the cue from Only a Dream, but it, it's, a, it's a great piece of music. Right here. And that's a great shot too. So here comes the Green Lantern theme right now. That goes all the way back to uh, In Brightest Day, the episode of Superman with the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern introduced that theme for the first time. I've always felt that it's had a, a great sort of sense of majesty and awe and yet a little bit of mystery about it, as as would befit the Green Lantern Corps. And how can you not love this? It's funny because it's ridiculous. This is also uh, similar to a scene in Mark Wade's Midsummer's Nightmare, where Flash's nightmare was that and he took this from his own previous work in the Kingdom Come miniseries that Flash would end up living his life between the ticks of a second. No longer human, just a blur, an unseen guardian of the city. No longer human. And I love Maria Canal's acting here, too. Her screams are... And, and later on where she's pleading with... Uh, when they're trying to break into her mind and, and help her. Her screams and her pleading there are just heartbreaking. It's a pretty corny line, but 
it works. I'd love to know who's singing that. It kind of sounds like Maria Canals, but it might even be a man. I'm not sure it's so distorted. episode sort of gives you some new, some new respect for Flash, too. I mean, A Better World was probably his, his best outing in Season 2, but... And this, this line is so garbled, you can barely make it out, but... I got his eyes. Big toe. Dr. Destiny's characterization struck many as being a little one-dimensional, that he's, he's some nobody who decides to get revenge on the Justice League for some reason, but a lot of it is played out really subtly where you really have to pay attention to to figure out what his motivation is. But the idea was that he was guarding a LexCorp warehouse and the Justice League initiated a police search of the warehouse, presumably when they busted Luthor back in um, in Justice for All. And just because D happened to be there, he was thrown in jail for, I, I don't know, I guess being an accomplice or, or something. Um, and so he understandably hates the Justice League and feels that they trample on ordinary people, aren't even aware of ordinary people, and they just go about their business and ordinary people suffer. So he wants revenge on them. Not the absolute best characterization they've ever come up with, but certainly not one-dimensional, I feel. But a lot of that is just played out in the, the police tapes that Batman is listening to and so on, and you really have to pay attention to catch it. I wonder if Jean can actually do that, or if it's just because they're in a dream world that he can grow to be, like, 50 stories tall. His mass always seems to need to remain the same or something. I'm not quite sure how it works. I doubt he could grow to be that big. Oh, you feel that hit, don't you? The animation here is great. This is the first episode that was animated by uh, DR Movie. Uh, Dong Yang and Coco had, had animated the show up to this point. But uh, they brought in DR Movie on this one, and they really became their go-to studio for the big action extravaganzas. Uh, by the time JLU rolled around, they would usually they would, they would team up DR Movie with... Uh, but the start of JLU was was then a, a new director, uh, Joaquim Dos Santos, and uh, man, they knocked it out of the park every time. That his sort of rock'em sock'em directorial style, combined with their animation, was really something. But this is this is the first episode they animated, and that's why Batman belongs in the Justice League. A lot of people criticize it and say, well, you know, he couldn't do squat when he got Superman and Green Lantern there. What do you need Batman for? But he's the one who will never quit. When the others get knocked down, he's the one that will always keep coming. You've got to, unless you're willing to kill him, he'll get you eventually. And this is probably one of the most visually sort of frightening sequences they've ever done. Dr. Destiny's visage there combined with the lighting and the, the music
him. I love how Batman calls him Johnny, just to complete. He's got absolutely no respect for this guy. He's just another punk. There's a little animation gaff coming up here, even though Dr. Destiny has clearly been accidentally injected with whatever he put in that syringe. If you notice, the plunger on the syringe is still pulled back, even though it's empty. Right there, but what are you going to do? You get the message. And I don't know what this is supposed to be. Right there. What is she supposed to be seeing? Oh well, doesn't matter. And how can you not love Kevin Conroy's snoring? It's like him laughing in mad love. And some people suspected they would bring Dr. Destiny back after seeing this shot right here, where he looks like he's wasting away, trapped in his own you know, dream world. What they did in the comics was when Neil Gaiman brought him in in, in his Sandman series, they had him having his body having emaciated to, to the extent that he was almost like a walking skeleton. He almost looked like his skeleton self, except just a shriveled up husk. But they didn't end up going that way. He never appeared again in a speaking role. So that's only a dream. Great episode, great animation, a lot of great character development, some symbolism. You gotta love it. Thanks for listening.